Now a brief opportunity in our service to ask of our desires to the Lord for the advancement of his gospel throughout all the earths for our own needs, wants, and desires. I'm going to leave just a brief pause for you to inquire to the Lord. Just as we gave a time and opportunity for you to confess your sins, you will now have a brief silence to ask from your God. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we would have such an opportunity, such a privilege to come before your great throne of grace, to come before your mercy seat, to inquire and to ask of all that is within our hearts, of what we need in this world, whether it be physical, emotional, or spiritual, we thank you for this opportunity. Oh Lord, we begin, oh Lord, by thinking of our own civil world around us. There seems to be so much uh, chaos, so much disaster. We see financial uh, disruption. We see endless wars. We see in our world that there is no peace. Though many claim that there is peace, we can see quite clearly there is none. Whether that be internationally through actual wars or unrest within our own cities, we see a world that has been fractured by sin. And so we pray, O oh Lord, for the civil governments that are over us, that you would give them wisdom in order to not only govern us rightly, but in order to promote stability and peace within our country. We think, O oh Lord, of our own state. We pray that our state would be a state, O oh Lord, that sees prosperity. We pray that those who are elected over us, whether that be in our own Senate or Congress in general, we pray, O oh Lord, that you give all of these representatives wisdom, wisdom to not only govern their constituencies well, O oh Lord, but also wisdom for the flourishing of all those who live in Illinois. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would instill upon all those elected in state office the gravity of such a calling that they will one day have to stand before you, and in that standing they will have to recount all in, which they, in the manner in which they have governed. And so instill within all their hearts, all, every single one, without exception, the duty of such a common calling in our world. And we pray, O oh Lord, that it would be to the benefit of the average person within our state, but also throughout our country as well. We continue, O oh Lord, to think through missions uh, within our church. We think of the Taylor family who continue to serve in Scotland. We are reminded of the Mother Kirk, which we are often uh, connected to. We pray that as they serve um, the church there, that you would use them to uh, plant confessional churches going back to the roots of the heritage found within Scotland. O oh Lord, we lament the state of uh, Scotland and the British Isles as it relates to Christianity. And we pray, O oh Lord, that through the ministry of the tailors, but also many that are alongside them, that many churches would be planted that profess the true faith found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be, O oh Lord, with Nate and Aaron as they take up this great commission call 
in the homeland of Scotland, a place where we have been blessed and benefited from in our own Presbyterian tradition here. May we, O oh Lord, give back to the Mother Kirk in this regard. May they see the gospel once more uh, in its truth. We continue also to pray in that same vein for the lost in our world. We think of those who are lost within our own country. We pray, O oh Lord, for revival. We pray for a people, O oh Lord, within our country to have a greater compass for true good morality as derived from your moral law that we read just a moment ago. We pray that there would be a, a time where your church and its bold prophetic proclamation of the truth would be received well, not only by individuals, O oh Lord, but in a transformative way as it relates to our culture as well. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would see many come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use your church, but not only that you would use your church, that you would prepare the field before us as well that you'd soften the hearts of the American people for the gospel, that you'd give them ears to hear, that you'd give them eyes to see, and that you would use ordinary means of grace ministry through the preaching of the word, through prayer, through the sacraments, to draw the world to yourself. And we pray that, O oh Lord, today for our own country. Bring us true revival. Not, nothing based merely on our own emotions, but true spiritual transformation within our own body, but also throughout our country too. We continue, O oh Lord, to pray for our congregation as well. We think of sanctification, the process of being made holy. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a greater desire for missions in your church. We pray O oh Lord, that you would refine our own witness to Christ, that today you would give us zeal for the work of the gospel throughout all the earth, that you would create within us a zeal to stand firm together for Christ, a zeal to suffer well as we represent him here now on this earth. May our body, O oh Lord, be characterized by that zealous witness of Christ that we see in the New Testament scriptures and the apostles themselves. May we continue that great tradition by our witness here today. We continue, O oh Lord, to pray for those who are ailing among us. It is so delightful, O oh Lord, to, to see Clara with us once more and her whole family here this morning. We thank you for her, your sustaining grace upon the Bowers family, and we are delighted by their presence this morning. Continue to encourage them. Continue to feed them with your word. Continue to provide for them as you do, and remind them even now of your charitable love in the healing of their own daughter. We also pray, O oh Lord, for uh, Joanne as she continues to recover. We pray that the infection would completely subside, that you would continue her to, to sustain her good spirit, that you would continue to heal her, that you would give Dan wisdom and caring for his wife well. We thank you, O oh Lord, for this family, and we pray, O oh Lord, for imminent and quick healing. Pray for no more surgeries because of the nature of that good healing process. And we, O oh Lord, as we were delighted last week to have her voice added to our number in singing and listening and hearing, we, O oh Lord, long for that once more. We also pray, O oh Lord, for Kaya as she is recovering from her knee replacement surgery. We've heard good news and reports about it, but we know 
Oh, Lord, that there is much soreness that comes with this type of surgery. Give her knees strength. Keep her attitudes right and well. And remind her, even as she is absent from us, O Lord, that your spirit nurtures, cares for, and is along beside her even now. There are many, O Lord, in our own congregation that are ailing, that are hurting, some silently alone by themselves. We offer all these prayers up, even the ones that we haven't publicly declared here. In Christ's only name we pray. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Philippians. We are continuing our series there at the end of chapter 1. Last week we heard of Paul's dilemma, and that was a dilemma of whether it was better to live for Christ or to die as gain. It's a dilemma that I perhaps have struggled with in my own life and maybe your own, because it is not a dilemma for us. We'd much rather live. Maybe not for Christ, but we'd much rather live. And so we were challenged by Paul in order to take up that dilemma for ourselves to have two options before us. As we continue to live, we must live for Christ. But we must also remember in the back of our minds regularly that to die is true gain for those in Christ. It is true gain and true delight. To live is Christ. Today, as we finish chapter 1 of Philippians, we see what it means to live for Christ. Paul outlines what his life and the life of the church in Philippi should look like as it continues to live for Christ. And we'll learn that in order to live for Christ, you must be willing to stand for Christ as citizens of his heaven, of his kingdom. Stand now as we hear the word of God in Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Here's the word of God. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of that you are stand I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. When I, I was in high school, it was very popular for everyone to stand for something. Everyone in my school stood for something, without a doubt, because in my high school at least, maybe in your own high school experience too, standing for something gave you purpose gave you meaning, gave you reason to continue in those halls that you called your own. But in my high school, people stood for all sorts of things. We had those who loved athleticism, and by the manner by which they ate, 
their practice, their hard work, their exercise, everything that they did stood for that athleticism. But in my school, there were all sorts of things people stood for that weren't merely athleticism, not merely academics. Those who had studied for the ACT prep and studied meticulously paid for prep. There were also those who stood for political issues, cultural issues. I remember very hot debates at our lunch tables about LGBT issues, about abortion, about voting rights, about social justice. All within my school stood for something, some good, some bad. It's a mixed bag, really. Remember in middle school, we had a group of guys in order to promote uh, literacy Every Friday at the first 10 minutes of every class, we were able to read a book, and a group of my friends decided we would take that 10 minutes every Friday and try to read through the Bible together. And so every, the first 10 minutes of every class, we had an hour every Friday to read the Bible. And I remember some of my teachers did not like that. They, they despised that, and many of my friends would even have their Bibles confiscated from teachers that were very scornful for the faith. I never had mine taken, but that group of friends stood for something. They sought to stand for Christ. Even when it seemed inappropriate at school in that hour of reading they got on Fridays, they chose to stand for Christ. We all stand for something, and there is a real temptation in our world to stand for things that the world approves for us to stand for. There is a great temptation to stand for what the culture, the general culture, the general populace, the general government tells us are good and right things to stand for. They're the easy things to stand for. But Paul, in these few verses here, tells us the supreme. What are we to stand for? That first verse, to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is what the Christian stands for, and that's what you are called to stand for, too. Paul is stuck in Rome. He's living that reality regularly, the harsh difficulty of standing for Christ in an inhospitable environment. He is, tending, he is contending for the gospel on Nero's home turf, among Nero's own guard, among Nero's own people. He is continuing to stand firm, to live a worthy life for Christ here, living fearlessly in order to continue what the Lord had called him to, to live is Christ. And that is the same calling that we are to have here today. Our reputations are to precede us. When someone meets us, they are to know that that man, that woman, that child is a person that stands for Christ. Who do you stand for? What do you stand for? I think the temptation, and I know it all too well personally, is to keep private, to keep quiet, to keep it to ourselves, to keep the whole faith, to be sheepish when it comes to the culture around us. You've all heard it well, never discuss politics and religion in polite company. Maybe a good advice for a highly toxic family or a friend's group. But we are reminded 
that even when the world wants silence, we are to stand for Christ. Even when the world wants silence, we are to stand for Christ. In the first verse, we learn how to stand for Christ. How are we to effectively stand for Christ in this world? Well, it's quite simple. We are to stand firm together. Uh, You look down at verse 27. We've already read it a few times even, but only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This idea of a manner of life, better translated, it, it draws us to our citizenship, the manner of life, the respectable Roman life. Let your manner of life be a good citizen of Rome is how a Roman would understand it. To have your life be as the model for all Roman citizenship. So you could translate this then, exercise your citizenship worthily of the gospel of Christ. But what citizenship is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about earthly citizenship? Is he talking about heavenly citizenship? One of my great theological professors would pose a question like this, and he would put his hand on the side of his mouth and say, Yes. What he meant by that is both are in view here. Both our earthly citizenship, whether that be Rome, Philippi, or the USA, or our heavenly citizenship. We are called to be model citizens, both of heaven and earth. When we think of our own citizenship, uh, citizenship as, as Americans, we are Americans, We might seem more divided than ever as you look in our country around you, but we all are very similar. We all speak like Americans. We have accents that are American. If you go to Europe and you have a southern accent, they just think that's an American accent. From Chicago going south, they say, do you say Chicago like Chicago? We are Americans. We have thoughts words, customs that all reflect our American culture. We have foods, barbecue, creole, burgers, dogs. We, we think like Americans. We work like Americans. We act like Americans. We're individualistic almost to a fault. It's all about me, myself, and I can't take that out of our DNA. We're born in this country, and it saturates all that we are. The Philippians were Romans. They spoke like Romans. They thought like Romans. They acted like Romans. The Philippian church was full of truly Roman citizens, people that would retire from the service, and they would stage their life in Philippi. These were model Philippians, model Romans. They were a proud people. They were proud of who they were in the country that they were in. In Philippi, if you said Rome amongst a a group of former officers, you would see them stand up straight, prideful of their country. If you said Roman citizen, they would stand tall, proudly of their heritage as citizens of Rome. There is a high view of citizenship within the Bible here, and it's importing that great pride, that great zeal, that great stand for a country that is their own. 
And the Philippians are to be model citizens in it. But Polycarp reminds us well that as we live on earth, we are reminded that our true citizenship is in heaven. Though we are Americans, we are like a colony of Christians on this earth. Think of my own culture as I was reared in the southern suburbs of Chicago. It's Dutch country there. Uh, as Americans, as people traveled to Chicago in the early, uh, uh, earlier centuries, they, they ghettoed according to their own culture. And you have all those little ghettos continuing throughout the city even now, whether it be Chinatown or Germantown, they all still exist. There's a ghetto of culture that, that, that sticks together. But in mine, it was the Dutch culture. On the south side, it was, it was very Dutch. You saw windmills as ornaments and decor in most homes. You saw a Dutch boy and girl kissing in your gardens. These were things I grew up with, I saw regularly. You saw their names on every building, Strack and Van Til. It's where you bought groceries. Van Drunen's Heating and Air. Van, Van, Van. It was, everything was named Van. Van, Van Edberg. Dutch culture touched everything. Wooden shoes. I bet many of you have not even seen wooden shoes. Uh, I've seen many shoes that are wood. It's because the culture. The culture was thick. In my wife's own church, 150 years old, the first 80 years, the services were strictly in Dutch. They were a Dutch colony in America. And in a broader, maybe more applicable sense, the church is like that. We are a heavenly colony on earth. Uh, we see the culture of heaven interject and, and, and come to the earthly domain through the church, where when we see businesses, we recognize them set apart, perhaps like Van Drunen's eating in air, where we see the culture within our homes reflect the culture of heaven. Our churches reflect that very citizenship of who we are. We function like that sort of colony as the church. And we permeate the culture as that colony as well. But what does Paul call us to as that citizenship? That, that what does it mean to live worthy? What does it mean? On the one hand, it means that we are called to live in a manner that exemplifies the earthly culture around us. You see, our heavenly citizenship and our earthly citizenship are like a Venn diagram of value. There is some overlap. And where our cultures overlap, we are to be the best example of that in our society. You think of perhaps literacy among children. There's a great value within American culture to educate even the most impoverished among us. The church is to take that value, that good value, and exemplify it within its own culture, to be the greatest champion of children, to be the greatest defenders of children, to protect the orphan and the widow. These are values within our own culture. Our own government seeks to care for the orphan and widow, and it would be a great, great encouragement as if the church stepped up for their own, that our own would not even need to go to the government for help and assistance. It's where our cultures collide, where when 
You think about love or the fruits of the Spirit, uh, those heavenly values, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all these great values that are within the heavenly domain, those are also in many ways values on our earthly domain. To be examples. In Rome, there's a great value of self-control among the most philosophically trained if you were to be a philosopher in Rome, it was one that would have the most self-control over all their appetites, all their food, their drink, their entertainment. They reserved themselves. They controlled themselves. It is in the church where they were called to have the greatest sense of self-control, to be even-handed, to control one's own appetites and desires, to be a model an example. Why, why are we called to be a model and example? Not only is it a witness to Christ, but also because Paul senses the Venn diagram well, that there are places within our own faith and religion where we do not line up with the culture. And Paul doesn't want the church to unduly suffer where we line up. Don't give them reason to hate you. That is not outside of the Word of God. Do not be those who hate children. That's a good reason to hate you. Be those who love children. Give them the reason of the gospel to hate you. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The idea that our cultures sometimes don't overlap. Earthly kingdoms, as you know around you, you probably are struggle with your own government, your own culture, your own town in some ways. They have earthly values, elitism, status, selfish ambition. That's kind of the problem Philippi is struggling with, boasting, sin, debauchery. That's where we don't overlap with the world. That's where we must stand firm together. You see, the, the heavenly citizenship, how it, how it connects to that standing firm together is that we are one united people. And as we stand firm together, we grow closer not only together but to Christ himself. Our witness grows together. So much so that when Paul hears of the Philippians, he wants to hear good reports of them. Have you heard what's happened in Philippi, Paul? When they are brought up, there needs to be such a known nature of this group of believers that he will know them by how they live and stand and work together. The prideful gospel, uh, the pride for the gospel in Philippi was to be so much so that Paul would hear it even in Rome. That they are standing firm for the faith, and no matter the situation, together they witness and re represent Christ here on earth. I'm sure you've seen the, the, the illustration of a pencil. I'm not a pastor that does uh, random uh, uh, visual aids, you know, picking, you know, picking up chairs and stuff. That's just not me. Don't have any pencils on me. I'm sorry. Uh, but you've seen the one pencil breaks really easily. It's hard to stand firm when you're alone. It's hard to ha stand firm in Christ when you are by yourself. But as you add pencils, as you thicken the book, it becomes much harder to break and rip. Those who stand firm for Christ, those who stand firm for Christ will continue to stand and live for Christ on this earth. They'll be known for their faith. 
And how do we stand firm in Christ, though? When you think of the, the, the idea, uh, yes, we are citizens, but we are also to be as a people that strive for unity. As one of our great presidents said, who is uh, quoting Scripture, a house divided against itself cannot stand. If we are divided on the inside, cracks begin to form of disunity. We begin to fracture. Our witness begins to crumble. We become more focused on our own internal problems than on what we are in this world. And so Paul also calls them within this first verse to strive together in unity. To live for Christ is to strive together. To be with one another, to bear with one another, to struggle with one another, but not to divide amongst one another. To seek unity, to preserve and maintain the peace and purity of the church at all costs, so that when difficulty arises from the outside world, you might not crack and crumble, but stand resolute like a Roman battalion ready for war, no matter life or death, standing resolute together. There is no fracture in that group. Whether they live or die, they know they stand together. It's the same for the church. Luther gives us this illustration from this passage as it calls for the Christian. He says, though we be active in the battle, if we are not fighting where the battle is hottest, we might become traitors to our own cause. A reminder that believers standing together, going and marching into war, going even where it is most difficult, they stand firm together as citizens of heaven in unity. They will be able to even go where it is most fierce. And so, rounding out this idea, where is your priority when you think of your heavenly and earthly citizenship? Is your priority your earthly the life you live, you've enjoyed all your creature comforts, you've enjoyed the home that you've built, the home that you're building, the, the career that you've established, the legacy that you leave, or is your focus more on your heavenly citizenship, seeing that you are a pilgrim, a sojourner in this land that is not your own, longing for the heavenly domain, to die is gain. Living is Christ because I am a citizen of heaven. Where is your rank in this society? Where is your identity most bound to? It's so difficult. You can't divorce your identities or your citizenships, your dual citizens. But where is your priority? What informs your values? What informs your time, what you do? Where is your citizenship? Is it geared in heaven or is it geared on earth? It's hard to stand for Christ when we prioritize our own earthly citizenship because we value the earth more than heaven itself. And so the admonishment, the encouragement now is to learn through the scriptures, learn the culture of heaven, learn the values of heaven so that that great switch can change. So that you can see your citizenship in heaven. That's how we grow together. That's how we grow in Christ together. That's how we see unity because all the earthly matters begin to fade away. Even though the world wants silence, stand for Christ. Stand firm together, but why must we learn to stand firm together? In verse 28 to 30, we see that we are to stand firm in our sufferings. Paul actually says in this passage that to believe is not enough. 
You must also stand firm in suffering. Verse 28, and not, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that you are from God. There is very good reason for Paul to be frightened in this passage. He should be frightened. He has the yoke of Rome around his wrists, around his neck. There is social stigma. There is shame. There is persecution. There is difficulty. There is much reason to be frightened by the hand of Rome. But Paul says, even in the midst of perhaps even dying, do not be frightened by your opponents. Why shouldn't you be frightened by your opponents? Because it is a sign of their destruction. For those who are against you are against me. And because they are against me, this reveals your salvation. We're reminded of Jesus. There's almost a, a, a beginning of this verse, a vertical capacity to our suffering, a reminder that those who hate Christ also hate his church. We can identify and stand firm in our suffering because of the one who came before us, Christ himself, the one who had to bear the cross, who had to die for our sins. He stood fearlessly even in the midst of difficulty. And by his suffering... We can suffer well, too. But if there is division within our body and this pressure of suffering comes upon us, we begin to crumble. We just changed out our uh, power steering pump on our SUV, and we can sense it for months. My wife sensed it much better than I. Uh, it was still working fine, but the sound, you could hear the, that faint sound. Every time you, you cranked the car, you could hear it in the back, and you knew it was going, and you're just wondering when. And there's not much more evidence than that faint sound. But every time you turn that wheel, when pressure was added to that line, oh man, it squealed. It was cracking under pressure. And when we finally took it in, the mechanic said this was days away from bursting forth and you losing your steering. It was quite ironic. It was after one of our visits here <laughs> that we took it in. And so we were thankful that we got the vehicle home but the pressure caused by the leak was exasperated by the turning of the wheel. We we're just gushing coolant or fluid on the floor of the highway. It's like the same with a cracked vessel. When you begin to apply heat, hot water to it, the crack expands. It, it, it destroys the vessel. When the church is divided and fractured from within, when the pressures caused by persecution or suffering in the world come, we begin to crumble. That crack becomes a fracture that destroys the church from within. It's an example that you'll be tired of, the example that we've had to experience in the church for the past couple of years. When COVID hit, churches that were already divided became more divided by the pressures from the world and situation around them. And sessions and churches that did well, they were ones that were united going in. Sessions and churches that did poorly were those who are already divided from within. It exasperated the problem, caused many to crumble. But who are the opponents here? Who is Paul talking about? You may think, well, there's talking about my mother-in-law or maybe the person next to me. No, that's not what Paul is viewing as your opponent, maybe. But I think what Paul is viewing as the, the chief opponents here, quite simply, uh, most poignantly, Satan himself, 
the great deceiver. He is the one that is the opponent of the church, but all of those who are under him. In this context, it would be the Roman authorities. It could be the military. I'm reminded of the great British dragoons who would invade Scotland and destroy the meeting of the covenanters. They were no longer allowed to worship in their churches, and so they would worship in the fields. In many ways, how many churches have security teams that watch the doors. The Scottish church would have people watching the fields and look out for dragoons that would come and destroy their worship and kill everyone in sight. The opponents of the gospel. It could be in our own country, our own entertainment, our, the businesses that seem to govern us. It could be our schools. It could be other religions that pit themselves against Christ. There are a lot of opponents. And then all the way at the bottom, maybe your in-laws or, or something of that nature. Much less vital in the context here. Unless they really hate Christ and hate that you love Christ, then perhaps. But do not be frightened by these opponents. Those who have the power to slay you like the British dragoons slaying the covenanters. Do not be frightened because their choice to pursue you is vindication. There's a, remember, a remembrance here that those who are opponents of Christ will be defeated. In our larger catechism, we've been studying it on Wednesday, we are reminded of the, ex, the, the office that Christ has as king. And this is what our, our catechism says about Christ as king. Christ executes his office as king by restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory, for their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. What is Christ's work as our king? As our king, when we think of our citizenship, he is the one that will defend us. He is the one that will restrain and destroy all of his enemies. He is the one that will order creation by his word. He is the one that will take vengeance upon those who stand against Paul, against those who stand against the church. Vengeance is of the Lord. I had a, one of my employers once told me this as it relates to me working under him, that if I decided to say that I worked more than I did, that vengeance is of the Lord, and that the Lord will get me for stealing from him. I don't think that's what the Lord meant in, the, in these passages, thank the Lord. I didn't steal time, but nevertheless. Uh, vengeance is of the Lord. God will bring about justice as it relates to his opponents. We are a world full of injustice, and we are reminded here that God will make all things right. But we don't only connect with the, the Son through His suffering. There's also a horizontal nature to our suffering. We are ones that suffer together. When we are united as one body, theologically, emotionally, religiously, uh, in, our, in our ethics, when we are united as one people, we suffer well as one people. It's always difficult to suffer alone, but when you're with one another, it's much easier to suffer. It's much easier for my wife and I to lament together than for me to lament by myself. But even in difficult situations, social rejection, marginalization, harassment, imprisonment, economic 
deprivation, physical torture. You can just add on to the list of what the apostles dealt with. They were able to suffer well because they suffered together, united together as one. They were one people, able to suffer because they had grown together as one. Jesus then told his disciples in Matthew, if anyone would come after me, let him deliver himself and take up the cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those who are united in Christ may lose their lives, but they lose it together and find it. That's what Paul is saying here. It's not in vain. Together, even in difficult suffering, you can be united as one people. One commentator, as we think about applying such a difficult calling to suffer, says this, This is profoundly challenging for us Western Christians who have been told by their socially liberal, secular, humanistic, postmodern societies to shut up and keep their faith private. Instead, what this commentator encourages me and you is that in order to stand for Christ, we must understand what we stand for, but also willing, together as one people, willing to receive the consequences of that standing firm. It is easy for us to suffer together, both in word and in deed, because we suffer together unified in Christ. Stand firm, like a battled, ready army waiting for British dragoons to overwhelm us. Stand firm, like Leonidas's 300 as he, he faced the Persian onslaught of war. Arrows that would rain the, the sky, blot out the sun. Stand firm in the midst of all trial and tribulation because of the great promise of Christ here. For those who are in the church, they can struggle fearlessly for Christ because he is their king. He is the one that leads them, and he will be with them in the end. There is good reason to stand firm. I'm thinking of my own childhood as I, I referenced it before in, our, in my high school and middle school experience Everyone stands for something. What do you stand for? For the Christian, we stand for Christ. And it is in Christ we stand in solidarity together. It's a great encouragement for you. But for those here today who do not know Christ, who do not know what it means to live worthy of the gospel, who, who have lived alone their whole life like a single pencil ready to break and has been broken much before, engulfed with loneliness, engulfed by terror, sucked into your phones all day and night, or it seems like it's just you, you're by yourself, no belonging, nothing to stand for. The reminder here today is found in the gospel. Do you want to belong? Do you want to stand for something? The call and encouragement is to stand for Christ, the one who died that you might live. A great promise. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts, but call upon him and stand firm with us. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great calling to stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would create unity within our bodies and sustain it here now and forevermore. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.